Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Second Rail Podcast. I'm John Heinz. I'm here today with a special guest, uh, Mike Hicks, who has lived in Shanghai for a really long time. And I just realized when I started to say this that I don't know how long it actually has been. It's 14, almost 15 years. Wow. 15 years. All right. So I've known Mike for the two years that I've been in Shanghai and the two years that I've been here. The lowest common denominator of things that I've realized about him is that everyone that I have met in a city of 26 million, and I'll admit it's been overwhelmingly expats, but everybody I've met has about one degree of separation from Mike. He like knows a shitload of people. So it's been a, that's kind of the starting point for the conversation. But he's on the podcast today. He's a, he's a, a musician, a teacher, a yogi, a cryptocurrency expert, an investor. What else? You're all kinds of stuff. But he's here today as a Shanghai expert. I thought um, after uh, we were talking about what we what we could talk about and we thought what what might be fun is to talk about the changes that he's seen in the city that have radical that has so radically changed in the last decade. I visited here for the first time in 2006, 2007 and I stayed with a friend for about a week and even when I came back two years ago, the city was unrecognizable from what I remember back then. So there might be some obvious things we talk about, and then there might be some less obvious things. But um, I'm really excited to have him here today. So hi, Mike. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Glad, glad to be here, John. Thank you. Um, so the, the, let's start at the beginning. What, yeah. what brought you to Shanghai in the first place, and where are you from? Okay. Um, I'm from Rochester, New York, originally. Grew up there. Um, spent nine years in Boston before I came to Shanghai from 96 until uh, 2004, 2005. And I had the idea at that time that Boston had, I'd kind of outgrown Boston. Um, I was a musician. I had graduated from Berkeley and New England Conservatory. Um, after graduating, I got into the music scene, stayed in the music scene, I guess. I'd already kind of been in it and was working. Uh, Get it in, got into the uh, mortgage um, business <laughs> during the in, mortgage in Boston. Yeah, this is all in Boston. Yeah, I was. Oh, I was during actually, the mortgage crisis. <laughs> well, during the mortgage boom, actually. The boom pre. All right, all right. Yeah, I got. I graduated, and then I, I was. I was teaching and playing, and you know, and also grabbing other kinds of jobs. And I, I, I lived with a singer, um, who was working as a telemarketer for a, a mortgage firm, and she got me onto that in the evenings. And I was doing really well with that, actually. I, I ended up doing really well on the phone. Of course, a lot of people wanted to redo their mortgages and you know, buy houses. And then I got into this band with these guys who were actually mortgage officers, right, loan officers. And they said to me, you know, you don't need to be on the phone. You can just do what we do, and we'll teach you, and then we can rehearse more. And you know, I said, okay, what does that mean? And it means no, it means no salary is what it means. So I got into you know kind of doing business in a way through doing music because I ended up doing the the the, loan, the mortgage origination with those guys for a while and then I went on to another another company. Um, but then I just felt like I'd kind of run my course. And a lot of musicians when they graduate from you know from school jazz programs especially tend to find that um, that there's other things calling them and. The Boston scene is is a great scene. It's very deep, a lot of great musicians, but it's also very contained, and it focuses really heavily on the the academic side of music, and as opposed to the New York scene, which is you know you make it or you don't. It's professional, and you know um, you can make it as a musician in both places, but in Boston, it's very difficult you know to to say like you just play full time or something like that, and 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 difficult to get discovered or whatever you might whatever might be out there for you. So I, I felt like there's there were greener pastures calling me and. The decision was really either New York City, back to my hometown, or overseas. And the reason why I thought about overseas is because my first overseas experience, my real overseas experience as a student was um, as an undergrad. I was an English major at St. Lawrence University. And my senior year, I went to Kenya uh, for six months, or for a semester. And I got, you know, I, I, and I'd been to Kenya once before because my grandmother, uh, she took all of her five grandchildren on an overseas trip. And my cousin and I, uh, after seeing her pictures, decided that Kenya was the place we wanted to go. So I had been there when I was 16, and then at St. Lawrence, they had a really, they probably the best um, Kenya program. They had a lot of good overseas programs, but Kenya they were really well known for. So I went to that program, and um, and I was really drawn to the overseas, you know, just learning about different cultures and, and, and seeing seeing the world. Um, so after I graduated uh, from St. Lawrence, I spent some time in my hometown, and then I ended up going to Japan as an English teacher for a while, for about a year. And 
that experience was was good for me, but it wasn't the Kenya experience, and it, it a lot of it rubbed me the wrong way because I just wasn't prepared for the overstimulation of a place like Tokyo. Um, but compared to Kenya, yeah, or yeah. even Boston, yeah. Well, well, that was that was between Boston because then when I came back from Japan, I, I realized what I needed to do was get get to music school because I'd never really given. I'd been doing music since I was four. I, I was a music minor okay. at St. Lawrence, but uh, and I got really kind of back into music at St. Lawrence after leaving it in high school for quite okay. a bit. But then I got kind of serious and I said, you know, this is what I, I, I got to do. I, got, I had lots of support from my family and um, you know, got a scholarship to go to Berkeley and then and then studied there. Uh, and then went to NEC, did a master's. But the, the whole, you know, overseas experience had kind of stayed in the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. And it was just um, kind of serendipitous that I met a, a singer um, named Carrie Zhang, Zhang Le. And uh, she's still part of the, the Shanghai scene to some degree. She, I don't think she lives in Shanghai right now. But um, she and a pianist named Huang Jianyi, who is very much a part of the Shanghai scene, mm-hmm. were living in Boston. Uh, Carrie was studying at New England Conservatory, mm-hmm. where I had graduated from, and I met her. And it just so happened that, you know, I mean, she had been, uh, she's from Shanghai, and she'd been doing um, long, long-term contract gigs, like I think she was at the Hilton for many years, or, you know, that, that hotel, uh, the one on Hua Shanlu. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, it just sounded, and there was musicians coming to Shanghai, a lot of foreign musicians had been coming to Shanghai. At, at that point, it was just starting to open up. Mm-hmm. And she really kind of turned me on to the idea of Shanghai to the point where I just said, okay, let me, let me book a trip, you know? And, and I'd met some people through email. At that time, it was just email. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd kind of gotten an offer to play at, at, at the Portman Hotel, but that sort of fell through. But by the time it fell through, I'd already made my plans. And then there was a, um, a saxophone player from Boston who also knew Carrie who also just coincidentally had booked a trip to come here, and he found out I was coming, and we played together at uh, Jay-Z Club within my first couple of days of arriving. Um, so, so, talk, so talk about the, the, when, you were, when you were first coming, like was it, um, when you were saying it was opening up, what yeah. was, how, how did you taste or how did you sense that it was opening up when it was opening up then? Um, was it just easier to get a visa, or was it something more than that? Well, the visas were certainly different, and we never really worried so much about visas in those days. Okay. But, I mean, okay. I, it, it's very difficult to even put into words, but the, the moment I arrived, the moment I stepped into Jay-Z Club, the old Jay-Z Club on Fuxing Lu, mm-hmm. um, it had just opened, it had just moved from its previous, its first location on Hua Lu, which I didn't ever go to. Mm-hmm. But there was just something magic going on, and, and I think it was a combination of things. I think for music, it was this whole thing where, where you know, Jazz does have a history in Shanghai. In the 1930s, jazz was a big part of the Shanghai, you know, scene. Uh, ballroom, it was jazz bands from the U.S. that were coming over here, professional jazz bands. Um, so Shanghai does have a bit of a history. Um, and then after, you know, after, after things were kind of shut down for a while, it, it, it felt like that was the, the rebirth. And there was a lot of support from the local musicians. They were very interested in, 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 in playing and in experimenting and, and uh, something that Boston didn't have, actually. Like a, almost like a, a a New York experience, but like in the in the good days of New York, you know, where it was like, and a lot of the the um, audience members that would come, they'd be very sincerely interested in trying to understand, you know, like just listening or maybe not understanding, but just experiencing, you know, um, live music, creative music, and and so there was this kind of thing. But there was also there was also the lead up to the Olympics in two thousand eight, uh-huh. and, and you could even and you could just to, just to clarify, yeah, you, you, there, this kind of feeling of experimental growth, kind of new yeah. stuff, was yeah. happening in hotels. Um, like well, I mean, it sounds. I mean, it's it that that seems like a bit of a contradiction from what you would see yeah, in the U.S. Yeah. Or, well, okay, so my first couple of real gigs, like real um, stable things, like I I came in I came in June. So today's June sixteenth, uh, right? Mm-hmm. So I came June fourteenth, two thousand five. Oh, and wow. I, I remember, yeah, I remember like getting out of the airport and just like ba- barely being able to breathe because it was so hot and so humid. And like every day that first, you know, I booked, I booked a five-week stay. I was going to go back in August. I still had an apartment in Boston. Um, and I took like four showers every day because <laughs> I was just sweating, you know, like a pig. And, um, <laughs> and it was like, like that, that, that first few weeks, I mean, within a week or two, um, I'd gotten called to go to Tibet to go on a gig. Wow. which was sponsored by Budweiser. So it was like a half foreign, half Chinese band. And I went to wow. Tibet for two weeks, and every night we were playing in a different club. And wow. it was a, just an incredible experience. I mean, still to this day, one of my best Chinese China experiences when it happened just, just like that as soon as I came. 
Then I went back to Boston, and I had some other gigs at Jay-Z Club, and just, it was, you know, like this kind of thing. I mean, I'd be on the, you know, out, out in the street or something, and, and Ren, the owner of Jay-Z, he'd be, like, calling me at, like, 8 o'clock, saying, hey, can you, can you play tonight? You know, be like... <laughs> <laughs> tonight. <laughs> yeah, 9.30. 9.30 to start. <laughs> right. And, and just throwing bands together. Wow. You know, which, in a way, is a, is a much more organic and, and better way, not, you know, better is a subjective term, but... Uh, freer way to, to create music because you never knew what was going to happen and you never knew exactly who was going to be there. And then after the gig, after the set, you know, afterwards they would have jams pretty much every night and people would stay. Um, so that was the first thing. And then I, met, I went back to Boston to pack up my apartment and then moved back in, in um, I think it was uh, October 1st. It was the golden week of 2005. And then I didn't have a steady gig for a while. I got a little bit nervous, but then I got asked um, to play at that time what was called number five which is five on the bund and it was down underneath it was like the basement room and it was like this cool restaurant lounge pub style thing with pool tables run by an english british guy um, mostly expat uh yeah yeah but the band i mean we had alec havoc was on sax and jaku whitcomb who was you know early pioneer you know those guys i don't know if you know wow i know yeah you know. um they were part of the band and and visiting drummers and um I mean, we could play anything we wanted to, you know, and, and we played some original music. We played some hard bop, you know, there's like Horace Silver stuff that we'd be playing. Um, I mean, whether that was the right thing to be doing, the, the club didn't last for, you know, and wh whether that's mismanagement or, you know, who knows what the reason. Uh, but the, the reality was, is that the scene was open to that kind of stuff. And, and yes, we did have nights when it was packed and people were, 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 they were fine listening to that kind of music. They seemed to enjoy it, you know, and. And so, I mean, that was just, those were my first two real, you know, that was my first steady gig. And then from there, I went to CJW, which is more commercial uh, for a couple of years. I did that. But yeah, that's, that's kind of how my impression of the early days was, is, you know, that kind of. Well, so what was, the, so, so describe that, uh, describe a little bit more what, uh, what it was, what Shanghai was like at that time. Like yeah. what was the, how, I mean, f I, f in my limited time here, I feel like I'm very much buried in expat scene and right. I can see where I, I see a lot of that, but yeah, it's yeah. obviously a city yeah. of 26 million. Yeah. Back then it was probably 21 million, 20 million. I mean, I mean, it's been growing so rapidly. I don't even know what the difference is just in the, it, that yeah. amount of time. Yeah. It's got to be huge. But I guess just give me a, give us a little flavor for like I don't know things you noticed at that time that were sure. radically different from today maybe or just yeah sure distinctive. sure well I mean I guess the numbers the number of people is, is a tricky one because you know when you think of Shanghai um, there are places that I've never been to in Shanghai like some of these districts the the, the, the Qingpu and the you know the Minhang the, you know all that stuff is is massive and I guess you know when they're doing the actual numbers of people that's that's the that's the city um, from what I've seen from what I've read you know recently I was reading something about the number of expats um, and I can't remember the year that it was comparing to but right now the number of expats is about 165,000 altogether with um, 20 something thousand Americans but in the you know I think it was like 10 years ago it was like about 275,000 right so the number of expats has gone down quite a lot and right. that's I mean that's a difference um, right for, for better or for worse right you know, for, for things that I've noticed, I mean, for me, my life personally has changed. Um, well, there's many ways I could say it's changed. There's many, many things that have changed personally. But the way I live in Shanghai has changed in that, you know, I think in those days we had a, we had a pretty strong sense of just being, f you know, like a lot more freedom. Ironically, you know, being in China, you know, we got away from a lot of the stuff that was kind of bearing down on us in, in, in the Western world. Um, I mean, we, we kind of lived more anonymously. We were here, you know, I think, you know, People knew who we were and stuff, but we were kind of left alone to do our own thing. And I mean, we not not that that's necessarily a good thing, or you know, it was just the way life just felt a bit easier in the sense, you know, um, doing music, you know, was 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 not a problem. Um, if you were a decent musician and you came and you got involved in the scene, mm -hmm. you were pretty much taken care of. You know, there might be dry spells. Um, you know, as a freelance musician anywhere in the world, it's never 100% guaranteed. But here, it seems pretty solid. There is still a scene. There are still, you know, friends who are still freelance musicians. They're still li they're still making it, mm -hmm. but I think it's a lot more intense now. There's been a lot of, um, you know, the restrictions and the visas and stuff. Um, well, we can get into that. We can talk about the kind of the yeah, what's sure. happened, what's happened mechanically. Yeah. But like, g give me a little bit about like I don't know, like day to day life. Yeah. How did that yeah. differ back then? What outside of music? Just I don't know in terms of where you went or how right. you, the circles in which you lived. Yeah, I mean, my, my circle of friends was the musician circle. Th okay. Those are my friends. So our, my day-to-day -day life at that time, you know, was, was pretty much going to the gig at night, trying to, 
maintain some sense of, of, of health, you know, <laughs> doing some exercise possibly during the day, trying to practice, trying to learn some Chinese. That, that's what I was focused on. Um, you know, it's, it sounds, it's funny because like you tell people, you know, like when I was doing the CJW gig, the gig would be from like 9.30 to 12.45, something like that. And six nights a week, you know, you'd have one night off. And then the Saturdays would be longer. You'd have one extra set. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you tell people like you're working like, you know, you're gigging like what, three hours, three and a half hours a night. And people just think, well, that's just like, you know, <laughs> that's nothing. That's like, yeah, I worked a, eight hours, today, right? Nine hours. And what you don't right. think about is this. I mean, you know, for me, I mean, you know, I'd ride my bike home after the gig and get home at like one thirty, you know, and maybe have some cereal or something and watch maybe a little bit of you know television series or something, and then get up, you know, ten o'clock or whatever, and you know, try to do some exercise, try to do something productive. But of course, you have, you have to do all your shopping and all your stuff, you know, day to day stuff. And then you have to get ready by you know, six, seven, eight o'clock, and you have to be done with all that stuff to get ready to go to the gig, and you have to be on time. I mean, you just, you know, it's, it's still a job. And then you have to go and you have to play the same songs that you just played for the previous <laughs> five nights <laughs> with yes. the same people yes. Yes. for six months at a time, possibly, yes. in the same kind of environment, which in CJW's case was, was an environment that was thick with cigar smoke and, you know, mm-hmm. loud and... Mm-hmm. I mean, it wears you down. Mm-hmm. It's it's not like as creative as people might think. It's it's mm-hmm. a bit of a grind, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. There was a, there was a long period of time when I think my life was just really like that. Um, we'll talk a little bit about some of the like the, the big areas that I want to ask about are things yeah. like transportation, sure, um, finance, yeah. like how money worked. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, I mean, the politics for sure. I want to know about housing. Yeah. What yeah. was the difference? So you know, like give me pick one sure. thing like that right. that's changed. Well, housing definitely has gone up you know, uh, double really. I mean, what, what people pay more than that in, in a lot of cases. I remember, you know, just coming here and looking around at the, I mean, if somebody, if one of our friends spent, let's say 6,000 RMB on what would be a two bedroom apartment, mm-hmm. you know, I remember a friend, I remember, um, there's a drummer named Chris Trzinski and he got an apartment one time with a jacuzzi in it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it was like a two bedroom place and it cost 6,000 a month. Uh, of course, the jacuzzi was just a tub until you filled it up, and, right. and it turned out that it was like a pain to keep that thing full, and it, it took hours to fill it up and all that. So I don't think he used it very much. Right. But that was like a, that was a big. I mean, it, you know, it was just that kind of thing. Like there was no need, even though it wasn't really that much money by any standard. You know, you could easily live for three thousand, four thousand a month. Were people tearing so, down the buildings? Are there? Are I mean, we're sitting here in in my apartment, which is a you know fourth floor walk up of a of a building that probably was built in what the eighties, nineties, seventies, something yeah, like that. Yeah, sure, right. And then there, but and then and then you look around, and I think about Shanghai, and I think it, now it's all high rises. Right. Like, is that transition happening? Most of your friends, did you see that? Is is are people moving into high rises more? Or do you, yeah, do you sure. notice the building difference? Um, well, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think right, like for right here, you know, this is the French concession. These buildings are protected, and uh, you know there's there's certain areas like like these old houses they 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 won't tear them down, um, and, and I don't think they can build over five stories in this particular neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, my first impression of Shanghai when I when I came was already like you know Gotham City. It was already kind of like that. I just you know straight up. Yeah, because um, I mean, even though it wasn't there at that time, like the the buildings in the in on the um, on the Pudong side of mm-hmm. the Bund, mm-hmm. I mean that was Jin Mao. There was the Pearl Tower. Like when I was a, my that first. Was it. <laughs> well, it was it, but like as a, as a tourist in those first few weeks, I mean, I remember going to like those places like Pearl Tower and just being like, wow, you know, that, right. I mean, you know, but I mean, whatever's over there now, the finance center and all the other, you know, they dwarf those buildings. Oh, yeah. For people who have never been here, it is when you're standing on the west side of the river looking to Pudong, which is the east side, it's, and you see that you, they have at the, at the base of Shanghai Tower, which is now the tallest building in Shanghai they have like a history video that kind of shows that riverfront over the last 20 years yeah, yeah. and it's literally went from being a couple of buildings to like yeah. 70 yeah and they're just it's yeah. just completely so I, I, I have to think that's probably one of the most shocking sure locations. yeah well I think also for people that are from Shanghai like this you know that was farmland back in their childhood uh-huh. like the older people and that would be the big but you know they, they've seen all this change so sure I mean I, I've noticed the buildings changed quite a bit I mean that the physical uh, landscape it's you know, I guess I don't spend a lot of time in Pudong, so I don't really, you know, it all seems big. When I go over to Pudong, you know, right. the roads are all massive. It's not right. like human scale. It's just... Right. It's car culture. It's very wide streets designed for kind of convenience of driving in and driving exactly. out with big, like, plaisance. I don't know what you yeah. call it. Like, wide open fields in front of buildings. It's crazy. Um, but, well, talk about... So, talk a little about finance. Like, sure, how sure, does that sure. change? Give me a little picture of... Uh, Okay. Um, so, I mean, I have, I have this one foot in the finance world, or I, I, you know, not so much anymore, but, um, 
because I had this, so I got into finance actually as a financial advisor in this financial advisor industry that existed because expats at, at that time and still today to some degree, you know, they would receive payment here, um, but then they wouldn't really have any, any, any um, options within China to invest their money. So they would send it to these overseas investment plans, you know, which would be on kind of tax-free areas. Um, and, and I guess that, you know, what I, what I noticed at that time and, you know, the reason why that industry existed is because there was lots of well-paid expats, lots of expat, you know, I think, you know, you go back far enough and they would consider those kind of hardship posts, you know, those, those management positions, which would be in, in Shanghai, you know, you go back 20 years or so. And it wouldn't have been a desirable thing for a lot of people right. from the Western world. Um, and that has changed radically, I think, that you know, a lot of those people are not here anymore. Those, those management positions are now mostly local Chinese. They're, they seem to you know, be qualified. They, there's a lot of people that have come back from studying overseas. And um, you know, I, I, think, I think that, I mean, I, I see that in terms of finance. I guess, I guess in terms of just what's happening at Shanghai, you know, if you want to get into the, like, like the whole relationship between China and the rest of the world and that, you know, how that's happening. I mean, that, you know, we're, we're, we're in the middle of this whole push and pull kind of thing. And, and I, I don't know that I have a, you know, um, there, there's a lot of views that I suppose we can adopt based on what we read, what we hear. A lot of things have been happening for a long time that I, I think, you know, if you talk to American business people here in China, they say like a lot of this stuff has already been in the works for a long time. It's a complicated relationship. You know, the way that the American industry, the American administration is dealing with it may not be the best way, but a lot of the business people aren't necessarily against or for. It's just like, it needs rebalancing, you know. But I think there's this whole other discussion about um, just, you know, like the, the financial world, because I think, was it last week that the Federal Reserve um, just announced that they're going to have like unlimited quantitative easing. Right. It, what does money mean right. anymore? Right, really? right, right, right. They're going to kind of it's going to flow both ways. It, yeah, it's just so hard to put put, right. put my head around. You right. know, what is it? What is what does currency even mean? You know, we're 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 in this thing where like unlimited financial, um, you know, quantitative easing. Right, what? right, right. It's, it's, <laughs> I don't it's, know. <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, give it. Give me like the feeling on the ground of being here at a time. I mean, yeah. You know, word on the street. I think the official GDP rate right now is what six, seven percent or something like that. Mm -hmm. All the Western observers I talk to talk say you know take two off the top mm -hmm. you know if you know but but clearly there's it's I mean even I've noticed just when I look around I don't see the cranes that I saw when I was here or yeah. whatever in 2007 yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I mean it's but there's still a lot of new construction everywhere you go and things right. are new it's right. a new it's right. a new sanitized sure, clean sure, city sure. for people who haven't been here it looks nothing like a European city or even an American city at this point but uh I mean, how does that? I, I would imagine that back then there was there was even faster growth when mm. you got here at that yeah. time, right? Yeah, that yeah. was it was opening up, and that was when it was the super boom. So did that like did that like I don't know for lack I don't want to use trickle down, but did that trickle down to you? Did you feel that? And do you feel a difference now in terms of like how it's worked, or is it just so you're in kind of a micro market that's distinct from all that? Well, I guess I guess for us, you know, if we're talking about ourselves as as you know as teachers in the international school industry. Um, uh, well, there's been a shift in that industry because, you know, the expat families, uh, the Western expat families have largely gone, you know, like right. as far as the construction, um, they're, you know, they're, let's see. Um, well, I mean, I don't even want, I guess I'm just thinking, I, I'm just thinking that, that when I arrived in Shanghai, I had this feeling that there was like, you could, there was an, I don't want to call it an optimism, yeah, but there was like a sure, happiness sure, about, sure. there was a, a hope of people feeling good about the market that quite frankly, having been in Spain at a time where they had 20% of 40% unemployment for, yeah, you know, yeah. men under 25 or some or 30, it was some crazy statistic. You know, you could feel the dour darkness of Spain and you felt this hope here. Are you talking and about 2006 when you first came? Yeah. 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 yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah and I mean, yeah. and I, so I'm wondering if like, if, 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 if that, like, if you felt that, if like there was a, you know, and I don't know oh, for what sure. that would feel. No, I totally agree. That's I felt that optimism. That's that's kind of what I was leading to. I mean, my world was music, but I felt like it extended to business. I, I felt like it extended extended to everything. I think there was a bit, you know, it was a bit of over optimism too, and a bit too much trust and a bit of naivety. A lot of people would go into business together, not knowing each other, and I heard horror stories about how that ended up. You know, yeah. But I think what happened. I mean, that time, two thousand five, two thousand six, two thousand seven. Yeah, it was very forward looking, and you know, it's all grow, all all optimism, all looking forward. Then the Olympics came in the 2008. I mean, a lot of things happened in 2008. There was the Olympics, there was the earthquake, which, you know, in Sichuan, mm -hmm. um, and then there was the financial crisis, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of things. But I mean, interestingly, I mean, like being here in China, we, 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 I, we didn't, we felt those things, you know, in Shanghai, I should say, um, but we also kind of sailed past them pretty, pretty quickly. And I think what happened was that the government, 
as far as like the, the economy, they just they just doubled down on growth. They just doubled down on you know construction and all the growth, all that stuff. Now, I mean, you know, there's, you can read all these articles about what that actually means. Did that really help? You know, who, what was that? You know, what was driving that? Was it really demand there, or right. is it just built hoping that future generations use? You know, there's right. all kinds of ways to look at it. And as far as me personally, I, I, I guess I can give you an example of. You know, going to gigs, for example, on on, on these uh, luxury property openings, right? And sometimes the property's oh, wow. not. Sometimes the property's not even built, though. It's just it's just right. the model that that's there. You show up on the gig, and you got this model, you know, and and <laughs> and people come up, you know, first thing on Saturday morning as soon as they open the door, and they come in and, and bid. And they're bidding on stuff that hasn't even been built yet. Wow. You know, and then the only thing that they're, the only thing we're there for actually is, is photos. You know, they just want to send out this promo material. Nobody's really listening to us, you know. They, they, uh-huh. it, it can happen like that, you know. Uh-huh. Um, but then, you know, all that's happening is, is that these buyers are just going to sell it to the next person. It's, right. you know, the greater fool theory. And right. whether or not the property actually gets built or not, I, I, I don't know. I mean, right. I, I went to, I've been to lots of luxury properties that were built also, and then nobody's living in them. And right. I mean, and, you know, you read the stories about the ghost towns that they're out there. Yep. I've never been to one, but, you know, that's got to mean something. And, and, you know, some people say that it's just waiting for the other shoe to drop as far as the economy and the over leverage over debt and all yeah. the overbuilding. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. You know. There's gotta be, I mean, that's, I mean, that, it's, that's part of the nature of any, any observer knows that from, uh, from, uh, from anywhere inside or out. It's kind of part of it. Sure. The, the, the feeling among the people, the Chinese people who I've met here and become friends with is mm-hmm. that it's still, it, it is still a feeling of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, optimism, mm-hmm. like a feeling mm-hmm. like things are going to are going well and are going to continue going well. Yeah. So I, it, I, 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 I don't feel it's like, I don't know. I, f- I even feel compared to being in the U.S. right now, it still feels like more exciting. Like sure, some growth. sure, sure. But you you mentioned about um you mentioned about business owning. Yeah. And you know a large part of how I get information here is through word of mouth. Yeah. And I think that's how most people get information, which is something different perhaps than the West. Although I get it that way too. But I remember I remember one of the things everybody talked about when I got here was like it's impossible to own a business in China. It's really really hard. And then I remember going out to a few dinners and like meeting. British guys, French guys, American guys who were like own businesses True. and they were running them just fine. And yeah, like, no, yeah. it's not that hard at all. So what's, how have you seen that change or, or what do you, I mean, what, does it, is it, I mean, I'm thinking for, from two levels, one, and just what have you noticed? And two, like if there's somebody in America who's thinking like, you know, Shanghai's a city of opportunity. I yeah, there, like yeah. what would you say to them? Well, I think it, I think it is, I mean, personally, I have never owned a business in, in Shanghai. I mean, I've thought about, there was early, earlier on, there was things that I was thinking about getting into. I was actually at one point, a general manager of a finance company of, of like three people, you know, but I mean, we, we managed small, you know, we, we had a few clients, we managed their stuff. Um, to say that you're owning a business, it, it's, it, you know, that, that can lead to a lot of different, um, scenarios because i think this the, you know the thing one of the things that's coming out like this this you know this trade war stuff is like what what is the nature what is the structure of a, of a business a foreign business in china right. it's difficult to be majority owner i think you always have to have a partner who's got 51 percent of whatever it is it's got to be a chinese person right mm-hmm. so when you say you have like a foreign business owner you know there's wholly there's woofy wholly owned foreign enterprise but they usually have to have a chinese partner and there's there's joint ventures or whatever you know some of these structures that are, are not so uh, favorable towards you know foreign and foreign owners, so it's possible to have to be part of a business. I think, and I think there are still successful um, smaller businesses and ones that have you know some for whatever they have a niche and they, that's that's what they do, especially like in the restaurant and the food and right. beverage industry. Bakeries, coffee shops, bars. yeah. Well, I remember like there was this. So here's a here's a story. Um, I went on this gig at a wedding, and on the way back, we our band we had rented a van, you know, and this guy foreign guy American guy uh, he asked if he could ride back with us because this is way out in one of those districts you know and and we said yeah come on in and uh, it, he was he, he was working for American greeting cards as a designer or something like that okay. and he said he was he was a he was a Belgian beer enthusiast and he had somehow gotten the okay from the the Belgian consulate to get beer into Shanghai okay. so he was going to open the first Belgian beer bar and he wondered if we if we'd like to play there you know and we ended up you know, just on this car ride that, you know, back, we ended up getting a steady gig at this Belgian beer, which was tiny, it's a small little place. Uh-huh. Um, but it was, it was a hit, you know, he found a niche and that grew, that was Kaiba, which I'm not sure if you've been to, but there's three or four in, in Shanghai now. And eventually they were bought out by Goose Island, which is now, you know, Anheuser-Busch and they, yeah, huge. yeah they're massive. And yeah. I'm sure he got paid millions of dollars for that. So, 
you know, he found a niche and it's a lot of it's just the, the originality. But then there's also the stories of the big name, you know, like Best Buy. Best Buy used to be right in Shuzhou. Uh-huh. That was open for a couple of years. And then they just they just couldn't compete. They couldn't compete on price. Um, there, there's, there's also those kinds of stories. The, a client that I used to have who, when I was doing finance, he was working for this um, sign company called Dactronics. Dactronics would make these uh, big... Very famous. That's yeah. the school company yeah. to make like fo- right. football scoreboards. and scoreboards. They right. are the big hotshot company. Right. And, and his, his line was that he would get the first deal. He would go to some of these second-tier cities. He would get that first deal. But then he would find it on return visits that... They had basically just reverse engineered his product and then put it under their own brand, yep. and because he didn't have any guanxi, you know, like no, yeah. you know, yeah. the guanxi, yeah, and, know, and gotta, yeah, gotta know somebody. <laughs> it's it, it makes the you got it matters who you know more exactly. than what you know here exactly. times a million. Yeah. yeah, so I'm not sure if it's getting better or worse. I, I get, I mean, I've got Chinese friends who have businesses, and you know, they they say that it's. Well, I hear, I hear more that it's, it's more difficult right now and, you know, um, than, than before, you know, uh, it's slowing. I mean, we, we just kind of see that it's slowing, but does that mean that it's like, you know, that's normal, right? So Right. And even the intentionality of the government to protect its industries for its own people, every country does that. I think they do it more here. How they do it, the intricacies of it, yep. I have no idea. Yep. But, I, no, but I, I have met plenty of people who have who do have businesses here and seem to be doing pretty well with them. But talk about talk, talk about um, uh, talk about the, the kind of the, the security stuff, the cameras and the and the tech. I'm sure that between the time you got here and now, you've noticed wild changes in terms of I mean, even the simple stuff with yeah, social media yeah, and WeChat yeah. and Alipay and paying all everything being paid electronically. But, well, but you know, the big uh, a big one is obviously the ubiquity of cameras and kind of surveillance everywhere. Um, and I know that a lot of friends in in you know New York and and London will say to me, "Well, you know, we have cameras everywhere too." And I'm like, "You don't understand." No. But um, I'm curious how it's like changed what you've seen. Sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah, that's true. I mean, there's 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 cameras everywhere. Um, I mean, it's part of this is hard to put into context because I haven't been living in the U.S. I go back for summers. I go back in Christmas, you know, and, and I guess I, I, I feel like there's some surveillance going on there. I mean, there, there is, you know, and, and for sure. there was after 9-11, you know, we kind of got the, 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 the message that now if we want to, we can listen to your phone conversations and, and read your emails and all that. Um, so, and, I, and I'm going to try to be a little bit sensitive because I am going to continue to live in China <laughs> here for at least one more year. Yeah, um, yeah. I've signed next year's contract, but I, I guess, yeah, I mean, it works a couple of ways. So let's, the, the, the positive thing is this, if you're, you know, you're on the street alone at night, um, I personally have never feared for any of my safety or anything oh, like no that. Oh, no question. And I've had friends that have lost, you know, lost stuff in taxis, for example, and because there's camera footage, they can find the license plate of the taxi, and you know, like that can actually make life a lot better. Yep. Um, but on the other hand, yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm I'm probably like a lot of the Chinese people that I know in terms of I just tune out. You know, I, I can't be bothered to worry so much about if my messages are being read. If the, my apartment it does use facial recognition to get in the door. Like, oh, interesting. Yeah, it's really? not it's not a very high end. You, you just build. walk up and it opens. Um, you have to press a couple of buttons and then the camera comes on. Oh wow! And that's how I mean there is a card that they gave me also, but I gave that to the IE the R R I E because we have the same IE. Um, John introduced me to it. she's wonderful, <laughs> but she's got the card and. I I can only get in now with facial recognition. Wow. And and I guess I mean that particular thing it doesn't bother me so much because I guess once they have my picture it, they've got it there's nothing you know it doesn't matter if I come in the door 50 times or I mean they know when I come in I suppose um but who's actually looking at that information I've been told that every foreigner for the most part you know has at least one person in the government that's kind of watching them anyways you know mm-hmm. and that just just doesn't surprise me I mean, it it mm-hmm. doesn't phase me really mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. people i go home and I talk to people about this stuff like, how can you live but how can anybody in china live because they all everybody's watching everything and, and is it that important i mean like i think as long as you're not doing anything controversial you know and the, uh, the the number of i mean i don't even think about the cameras necessarily as being as being oppressive i thought more about the level of it being a much secure place the two anecdotes that i always refer to are i remember my first couple of months here going out and at two in the morning this you know beautiful 20 year old blonde girl quite 
inebriated, leaving a bar by herself and me thinking like, yeah, uh, yeah, it's yeah. two in the morning and yeah. you're drunk. And she walked a mile and a half through the middle of Shanghai by herself and she was fine. And and then I thought about another time when I went through an intersection and I almost got hit by a car and everybody at work was like, well, they have footage of that. And it was like a given that you, that you I mean, the, the, the tri- it seems so obvious now what maybe didn't seem obvious to me in the US, which is just like, it's there's a trade-off. Like there's security and safety and in exchange, you're gonna lose some of those uh, that whatever the sense of privacy, which is a sense, and it kind of it raises all those things up. But I I I, I didn't I did not know that they were using facial recognition for camp. That's wild. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. This this whole facial recognition technology with phones and you know everything like that. It's wow. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not an AI. Um, <laughs> you, you know, uh, I, I don't I don't know too much about it. But yeah. from, I mean, I've I've read some stuff about it, and I guess what what is happening, or what's going to happen, is that as you go and you look at websites, you know, you, your face, all the, all the, all the responses. I mean, it's about like survey, surveilling what you're doing, but I think it's also about gaining um, human response, human interaction with computers with, so that like, you know, computer web pages for example will yeah. will re- still, they'll register your response to what's on the page yeah. and they'll that that will create algorithms which will then you know recreate the page or help you know the, it's it's all this stuff that you know what the facial response is doing yeah. is helping create the ai that yeah. is going to be used yeah so talk so talk about talk about other other tech things that have changed since you got here i mean i assume one of the easy ones is taobao yeah right <laughs> <laughs> and just yeah, i mean yeah. for people who haven't been here give a sense of what how that affects uh, the, how just digital thing or things yeah, are different yeah, yeah. here from anything they would know in uh, in the west yeah sure well um the digital aspect of life here is, is it's it can be very convenient i mean again like i i don't have a i don't have a direct comparison because i think like the whole thing with amazon well I mean, I was on eBay way back in 2000. I was like, a, you know, yep. I have, a, I have a, an account that it, it shows however long, 19 years of, of, of activity. Um, so I was always kind of into that stuff at the beginning, you know, selling stuff on eBay. You know, I'm a musician, so there's all this equipment that you need and you want to sell what you don't want. Um, and then the Amazon, I guess, of the U.S., it's, it's, that's kind of the equivalent. But right. Taobao, I mean, I've only ever used Taobao on my phone. And... You know, Taobao, I use Taobao, it's in Chinese. There's another one called Bao Pals, which is like the equivalent and it's just translated. And I think they mark the prices up a little bit or something like that. But sure. yeah, once you set yourself up and you get your Alipay account, um, you know, you can just keep punching away and find pretty much anything you want to, including including some pretty crazy stuff on Taobao. <laughs> What's the craziest thing you've seen on Taobao? Oh, there's so, well, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> the craziest thing for a family-friendly audience. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I mean, I can just give you one that just recently popped up just like last week or something. Uh-huh. I mean, it was just because I look at clothes sometimes and I, and this t-shirt popped up and it was like the, it was like Justin Bieber's torso with all of his tattoos. It was like, a, <laughs> it was like a t-shirt of Justin Bieber. <laughs> so, okay. That's, weird. you know, okay. <laughs> and it's like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess maybe, maybe that would exist in the U S but there's, there's that there's, um, the payment, you know, WeChat is like how we pay for everything. Alipay, WeChat. Yeah. So I haven't touched cash in a year. I, know, I mean, I don't even know if I would know what Chinese cash looked like. Right, I use right. it so little. I get it. I get it only sometimes on gigs. That's the only time I really receive it now. And, you know, when you talk about, like, you know, digital currency, it really is kind of here. It's just it's, it's in a different format, you know. Like, what is a digital currency? What is, it's, it's basically an electronic payment. Um, that's kind of what, what I do with everything, you know, send my rent on, on Alipay mm-hmm. to the landlord and... Uh, receive money, I guess, in my bank account, but then from there I always use Alipay or WeChat to send it, pay for things. Mm-hmm. So you know, the digital. I think I think in a lot of ways, um, China is ahead of the U.S. I mean, people in the U.S. Oh, st- yeah. still use no question. checks, you know, and oh, no question. paper checks. I, you know, I wasn't using paper checks for you know before I left for China for at least a good five years or so. Yeah, just didn't see the, the need because I had a you know online account. Yeah, but. Yeah, that's changed quite a bit. Talk about um, talk about so talk a little bit about uh, a, a young person who would want to come to to China, who would consider doing it. I've talked to two. I had two friends, uh, friends of friends, who were stopping by Shanghai and who I stopped. I met for a drink, and both of them basically admitted to me that they didn't want to tell anybody back home, but they were kind of coming here to do a little reconnoitering and see if maybe they would consider moving here. And it, and there's kind of a feeling of like there's opportunity. So for, so if you're a, you know I don't know if you're talking to a twenty something or a recent college graduate or a soon be college graduate who's thinking yeah I might want to go there, what would you say to them? Yeah, um, I mean it's it's I think it'd be a little bit dependent on what your specialty is, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's I think there's always been this kind of thing where you know um, certain certain specialties can can come here and thrive. Certain ones m- might have a harder time. I mean, 
let's say as, as a musician, you know, I mean, like if you're a young musician with lots of energy and you, you know, you, you have the ability to, to um, work into the scene and, you know, right now you'd need to get a sponsor, but you know, like that kind of thing, that could work. I mean, that, that really could work. It, it's very difficult right now to get a, like a steady uh, place to sponsor you. You know, there's only a few places in the, in the city that could work. Um, it just would take patience and perseverance. If you're doing business, you know, I think that there's still spots there. I think it's more competitive. And I think there's, there's a lot of things. I think that the shift has been like towards internships. Like when I first came here, we didn't really think about interns very much. You know, like it was just one of those That's things. That's global. That's not yeah. just here. Everywhere is hiring interns because they pay them nothing or they even get them to volunteer. And it's like a step, a foot in the door. So then you stay later. That's happening everywhere. So, so I think you'd have to deal with that possibly if you wanted right. to just come here as is work on work, work something, you know, something to get, you know, somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, there's still, I mean, there's still language teaching jobs, um, language schools that seem to still be doing well. Um EF, for example, you know, a friend, uh, know a couple of people that work there. I, I don't know that I'd be able to say, you know, for every profession, every interest, what what the landscape is here. Right. Because I mean, I also hear about a lot of, um, you know, local Chinese people that are you know, recent college graduates that are having trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I've read, you know, the, there's it's it's difficult now, and and even ones that have gone overseas and come back, the uh, the Hai Gui, you know, the they call them the sea turtles. They come back and, you know, it doesn't have the same impact, that overseas degree, um, that it, it did before. Because now. the is now, is that, do you think that's mostly because just the economy is slowing down and there aren't the jobs? Or do you think it's because they're making their own people, they're training their own people better here? Yeah, I mean, I think this, it's, I mean, or this both. is just one article that I've read and, yeah. you know, I assume it to be somewhat true. But, yeah, I think yeah. those things are true. I think there's probably a lot of those people now. There's more than before. They're not quite as specialized. And, yeah, and yeah the training here is, is getting better. I mean, I, you know, we're, we, we work in the education industry and the school I'm at now, now has a local stream, you know, and, and I get to see it, you know, uh, up close and, and it, I don't, you know, I don't know that it's better or worse. I just, I do see that they, they take it very seriously, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I mean, when you think about like the, the numbers of students that can actually, actually go to higher education, you know, mm-hmm. it's so small. I mean, like the number of students taking the Gaokao every year and the percentage that I can, that can actually get into a yep. university. It's a, it's a bloodbath. And once they get there, yeah, I mean, they're not going to let up at that point. They, right. they are on the track to go and do something, you know, and they, it's very specialized, I think in, in China, you know, mm-hmm. so I, um, well, let me ask you. Let me ask you one more question. I know you got but the one last question. So the big one is my big. My big question is, you know, Shang. Uh, one of the things that you hear from the moment you get here, and I have not done a lot of traveling in China other than going to a couple, you know, first tier cities and maybe a couple second tier cities. But I've generally been kind of diving into Shanghai full time, and I'm kind of here all the time. But one of the things you hear all the time is Shanghai is not China. That Shanghai is an entirely distinct entity. It's this super uber international city, and it's just different. So tell me a little bit about that. Like, what do you? think like how how much is in your experience shanghai different from the rest of china and what what is the thing that makes it so so distinctive yeah i mean i've heard that too and you know from the beginning and we were always told that you know shanghai is you can't you can't experience a real china i mean i have been to a lot of places in china a lot of it's for gigs you know just going and playing one off you know overnight kind of things i've been to tibet been there a couple of times been down to hong kong been pretty much along the east coast everywhere uh been inland a bit you know sichuan it, I, I think it is the real Ch- I mean, there is no real China. It is China. I mean, everything's China, but um, Shanghai has the history of the, the you know, the, the more diverse culture, the, the international settlements that were here a long time ago. Um, and, and some of that has carried over. There is kind of a, a more multicultural aspect to it, I think. Um, in the early days, I guess back in the 2005, you know, time, it was it was easier, I think, to find Chinese culture, like like traditional Chinese culture. I mean, it was more just available. Like now, you, you can still go study, you know, tea tea culture, tea ceremony, um, calligraphy, anything like that. But I mean, you really have to make the effort to go out of your way. And and I'm personally, I mean, I'm studying more Chinese now than I ever have. Like writing, I'm really, I mean, I'm pretty conversant in Chinese. But writing and reading, you know, you know, pretty much never have an opportunity when I need to write. But I'm getting more into like I'm just more interested in this, just knowing what's what's being written, what's being said. Um, Every place has its own culture. I mean, you know, I've been to some of these second-tier cities for these gigs where it's just, it's just another planet altogether. You know, you walk out at night and it's just, you, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like... It's different. It's foreign I don't want to say even within China. Yeah, I don't want to say anarchy, but it's, it's, it's <coughs> loose, you know. Like some of these second-tier mm-hmm. provincial places, mm-hmm. it's, you know... I went to Chongqing last um, November. Well, Chongqing and, and Chengdu, and the, but those are those are you know very quickly developing cities, and you wouldn't you wouldn't go there and say. I mean, it's 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 culture. I mean, there's shopping malls, and you know it's very um, up and coming. Whereas maybe ten years ago it wouldn't have been. But yeah, I mean, um, 
people from Beijing. I'm going to Beijing next week to take some students for the World Scholars Cup, and you know, I'll, I'll probably have a better sense when I go there of like, you know, I've been to Beijing, and this is a little bit embarrassing to say, but I've never actually been to the Great Wall <laughs> <laughs> or the Forbidden City, and maybe uh, maybe next week's the chance if I can take some of the students to go, but. Um, I remember meeting some people like there's this whole thing between Beijing and Shanghai people are you know the, the Beijingers look down upon the Shanghainese as is not Chinese or less than Chinese or whatever it is and the Chi and the Shanghainese look at the Beijingers as you know too rough and too you know not not cultured and I remember and that rubs off on foreigners too I remember at the old Jay-Z club one time I met these foreigners up on the second floor and they were in Shanghai they said they, they'd won a trip, you know, they, they lived in Beijing for like 10 years or more uh -huh. and they, they had won this free trip to come to Shanghai. <laughs> And they said if they hadn't won the free trip, they would not they have would. no reason. To. <laughs> and I'm like, but you're foreigners. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but they said they had no interest. And, in, you know, people in, in, in Shanghai, they don't have to speak Chinese because, you know, everybody here tries to speak English, which, which is somewhat true. true. Um, but that's, you know, it's also like you can still study Chinese if you live in Shanghai. Of course. Yeah. So of course. I don't know. It's, 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 it's a fun argument, I think. But I think Shanghai represents a big part of what China is, the, the growth, you know, the, the landscape, the, you know, the diversity. Yeah. What, 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 what comes out of China, what the rest of the world sees, a lot of that's from Shanghai, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, still very, very much like a uh, very eclectic in, in, in you know, fast-paced, high-energy place. Yeah. 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 Well, this yeah, is great. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing this, Mike. Yeah, this John. Great. Yeah. The, my uh, pleasure. The, yeah. I usually, what I usually end with is if, if I say if people for, you know, my, my, my paucity of listeners, but I do have a few listeners. <laughs> if they wanted to get a hold of you, how would I usually have uh, you give some kind of a contact or okay. I, actually one of the phones I frequently have people give is a, a Twitter feed, but that might not work. So I don't know, some kind yeah. of a, a way to get a hold of you if they, if people wanted to reach out. Um, well, I do have Twitter. I can't remember off the top of my head what, what my, my social media, um, presence and, and, and activity has gone way down in the last year. So I've got, I've got, you know, that's probably a, a phone up. number would work or an yeah, email I'm on Facebook, um, okay. Michael Hicks, and, and there's a lot of us on there. There's quite a few Michael Hicks who are musicians. Also, mine is a black and white picture of me holding the scroll of a bass. Um, <laughs> if, <laughs> okay. that, if that helps. Okay. Um, I'll, you know, emails. Uh, yeah. Probably, probably Facebook is probably the best, best way. Idea. Cause okay, um, you know, yeah, that's, that's, that keeps it kind of yeah. like, yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. Yeah. I'll do it. Sounds yeah. great. Well, thanks for doing this. We'll do it again when right. I'm coming back to visit. I mean, I, my, great. When my, are you my coming final back? two weeks this is fun. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, you're on, you're on your, you, you guys are on your way to Chicago. We're on the home stretch, man. Yeah. So we're almost leave two weeks from today. Or I, I feel like, like I need to do an interview and ask you about your, you know, we don't know what's going next. We're yeah. making this up as we go. So yeah, that's good though. Yeah. It's cool. But thanks for doing this. Yeah. John. All right. All right. I want to thank my guests. Thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank Mary Heinz for doing the editing, Ted Enley for doing the music that starts and ends the podcast. And I'd like to thank you for listening. If you have any ideas for the podcast, I am just getting going and would love to hear feedback from you. If you would like to reach out to me, I'm easily available on Twitter, on the website, secondrail.com. And you can certainly email me as well at johnheinz at gmail.com. I hope you will join me again in a fortnight for more conversation about education and where it's going.